Good morning. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to begin this morning with a question. Can you think of a time in your life when you got credit for something that you really didn't deserve? This would happen to me once a year in the late stages of my elementary days and my junior high days. Um, Every year, my school required us to do a, uh, a science project. Now, this involved picking your topic in the fall and and then doing your science experiment all throughout the year, and then you would come to the science project fair, and you would get to buy a three-by-four-foot you know, bulletin board to set up there in the lunchroom so everybody could gaze at your project. And uh, most kids went to Walmart to get those things, and uh, depending on, uh, you could tell a lot by the type of parents that these, these kids had, because Um, Some guys were just, you know, buying these plain white ones from Walmart and then writing on it in pen or pencil and then just setting it up there like this is my science project. Some people are backing these things in on flatbed trucks. I mean, this is, this was a big deal for some. But you could tell whose parents were, uh, really, really cared about whether their kid was going to do well. Well, my mom was, was one of those. My mom was big into scrapbooking at the time. And she had all the equipment to make a, a very nice-looking poster board. She had a cricket. Um, she had any type of craft material that you can think of. And she would get an idea, and she would run with it. She would lay all the pieces out and pictures and how it was going to be. She would pick the font. And then just so that I could have a part in it, you know, I'd take the back, turn it over, a little glue, and stick it right on there. Um, and, you know, we, we go through this process year after year. Well, the time comes to bring your poster board to, um, to the lunchroom and, and set up. And um, your teacher would come by and you would present your, present your bulletin board. And, and uh, I would always just stand there knowing that I had no right at all to take credit for this beautiful poster board that I, that I did. It was all to my mother. And the moral of the story is, is every sixth or seventh grade child needs a mom who can whip up a mean, mean poster board for their science project. But in all seriousness, my mom deserved almost 100% of the grade that I got on those science projects. I don't, well, the school's closed now, so you don't, we don't have anything to worry about now. Uh, when it came to the, my science fair project, my mother deserved all the glory. On a more serious note in our text this morning, we are going to see Paul argue that it, when it comes to your salvation in Christ... We can only boast in the Lord. The Corinthian Christians themselves provide evidence for Paul's argument that people are called by God in Christ through God's own choosing, through his own purposes. And these foolish, lowly, according to the world's standards, Corinthians, they demonstrate that God's wisdom in choosing them triumphs over human wisdom. And so there is only one ground left on which to boast when we stand before God one day. 
And that is the Lord himself who has planned it all, accomplished it all, and will get all of the glory for our salvation. If you would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, here's what Paul says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you'll remember, Paul is addressing issues related to the Corinthian church that had been brought to him by Chloe's people. Uh, They were a group of individuals in the Corinthian church. We see that in chapter 1 and verse 11. Now, the issue with this Corinthian church that Paul tackles first is this church was the most prideful church in existence in that day. We learned of the divisions that they were creating amongst their congregation by holding up their pastors far higher than they should have been. Their founding pastor was the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's tough to get harder, any, any better than that, right? Uh, he stayed with them 18 months, poured his life into them, and right after them was arguably the most gifted preacher in the first century. That was Apollos. And these believers would get behind and line themselves up behind these leaders and elevate them to a place that they did not deserve, and they would flaunt that I'm, I follow this leader, I follow that leader. Well, this leader baptized me. And we see Paul beginning to push back against this prideful church. On top of this, they gloried in their earthly knowledge and in their wisdom. Corinth was about 35 miles away from Athens, which was the hub for intellectual and philosophical learning. In their day in Corinth, If you had the answers to life, like who am I, why do I exist, where do I go when I die, if you could articulate it in such a way that was so compelling, you were looked at as something great in society. Well, this worldly wisdom and philosophy had seeped its way 35 miles from Athens and into the church of Corinth, and into its bloodstream crept this pride. So now the Christian faith and its leaders was something to boast in, to elevate their social status. They began to take pride in this earthly wisdom as they thought they had the best answers to the questions of life. And last time we were together, we saw Paul make every effort to push back against this pride by saying, the gospel of Christ is foolish according to worldly standards. God has crucified his son, something that the Jews rejected. No, this this can't be the Messiah. This is not our king. And something that made absolutely no sense in the philosophical world. Why would anyone kill themselves to save a people? This is a foolish thing. And the only, only conclusion that Paul left us with in the section before is, 
the only people who trust in this foolish message are those who are called. So that for those of us who are sitting in this room this morning, if we are in Christ, the only reason we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ was because God called us to do so, leaving us no room to boast in and of ourselves. And we come to Paul's second effort to humble these prideful Christians. And he brings up as an illustration, well, let's think about who you are, Corinthian believers. Paul knew the exact potent medicine that would heal them from this pride. And it's a potential, it's, it's a potent truth that you and I need this morning. And the truth is this, is the sovereign grace of God in our salvation. Your salvation, all of it, is attributed to God and God alone. Before time began, God chose his elect who would be saved. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Within time, God called those individuals who he elected. We see that in John chapter 6 by his drawing work of the Holy Spirit. And God himself, we see in our text, placed them in Christ in whom every believer experiences all heavenly blessings, both now and forever. It was not a joint effort between you and God. If God had not woken you up from your sinful stupor, you would not have responded to him. And we're going to see in this text why God has worked this way. God has chosen to save sinners this way so that he receives all the glory that is rightfully his as the eternal, self-existent God. However, in this church, God was not getting the glory and praise that he deserved because the Corinthian believers' eyes were set on themselves. They saw themselves as something far better than they truly were. So this is what Paul places right in front of them, like a roadblock that they cannot ignore. God is the one who is ultimately responsible for your place in his family. And let me just note something that Paul does here. We're in chapter 1. Paul doesn't tuck this back into... 1 Corinthians 16, where we probably won't even get to. Um, It's right here at the beginning of the book. This is like Christianity 101. God deserves all of the glory for your standing before him. When it comes to our salvation, we can only boast in the Lord. I want to split up our study this morning into... Here's a roadmap for you into three, three points, and I'll close with a hymn. Don't worry, because that's what makes a good sermon, right? Three points in a poem. I want to first look at, in verse 26, the circumstances of these believers' calling. Secondly, the purposes of God in, this, in these believers' election. And finally, the status at this believer's conversion. So when we hit those checkpoints, you know where we... Know where we'll be. Number one, the circumstances of these believers calling. Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul calls them to consider. This word simply means to look at something. 
This is a strong word here. Paul is calling them to look long and hard at something, to contemplate, if you will, like you're looking into a keyhole focused on whatever you're trying to look at. Paul is trying to get them to stop and think about their calling. Now, calling has two senses here. First, it's helpful for us to know that this calling is not a vocational call. Like you thought you were good at math, so you went and got a math degree, and now you're going to be a mechanical engineer. Okay, this is not the calling. Uh, this is not a call to ministry, per se. Um, this calling, first, carries the regular and frequent meaning in the New Testament as the effectual call of God, where he, by within time, draws the elect to himself. This is a calling that Paul has already referenced three times in the letter. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord. Okay, the only reason why these saints are calling on the name of the Lord is because God called them in the first place. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The source? God himself. Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the call of God to his children to believe in the gospel for salvation. Now, this effectual call of God, we should understand it in this way. I could stand up here and call all of you to repentance over and over and over again. I could reason with your mind, through your ears, through my words, that you should believe the gospel. You should repent of your sins because there is salvation in Christ. I'm making a general external call. Anytime you share the gospel with someone, you are making a general external call to people's minds. But unless the Spirit of God calls that individual, their heart will never respond to the gospel. So here the external call is necessary. The internal call is necessary. God does not need us to share the gospel with people. He could save individuals by his own will, by his own power, through his own means. But God has ordained it such that we must call individuals to repentance. Without us calling people to repentance, God would not, in fact, draw his children to himself. So that this effectual call of God does not happen apart from our general call to individuals. This is why our sharing of the gospel is necessary. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And as long as you and I stay true to the word of the cross, that is foolishness to most. God can use this general call that is foolish to most to call his children to himself in repentance and faith. This is the first call that Paul is trying to get these believers to consider. But the second aspect of this calling that Paul brings up here 
is for them to not just reminisce about the day that they came to faith in Christ, but rather their social status in life when God called them to himself. Their circumstances of, of where they were, what they did, and who they were. And who were they? Well, Paul uses these three words here. You weren't wise, you weren't powerful, and you weren't of noble birth. These were three things that were highly esteemed in the Corinthian culture at the time. Wise, these were those who were regarded as the clever in the community. Probably the well-read, the well-educated, capable of public speaking. Paul says, you Corinthians, you weren't a part of this group when God called you to himself. So why are you boasting as if you were? The powerful? These probably weren't like ripped guys, strong, okay? These were influential people. Those who could exercise power in society. Perhaps a power that came from learning or wealth or maybe a political standing. These Corinthians were not a part of this group either when God called them to himself. Lastly, not many of you were of noble birth. This has the idea of being born into a family that is of great privilege, of great wealth. These are the type of people that God calls him to himself. He calls nobodies to himself. Paul says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble, of noble birth. Now the question we should ask ourselves is, okay, well, does God ever call those people to himself? Sure, on occasion. Does God only call those of the lower class? Well, no. I love this illustration. George Whitfield was a great preacher of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, and he preached this exact text to a very wealthy and powerful woman. Her name was the Countess of Huntington, and she basically funded Whitfield's itinerant ministry. And she often would have Whitfield come over to her mansion and preach on this large staircase, and she would bring her friends over to preach. And during Whitfield's message, it was recorded that this Countess of Huntington said of this sermon, I have been saved by an M. Look at the text. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So in her saying, I'm saved by an M, God does call people like the Countess of Huntington. But yet it's not his regular practice. God calls the nobodies of society. And he does it for a purpose. And this is often countercultural, though, is it not? I remember playing kickball in elementary and junior high, and there was often an opportunity to pick teams. Often I got to be captain and pick my own team. Well, in order to have a good chance of winning, naturally I was going to pick the best options. Right? I was going to pick the strongest, the fastest, uh, the one with the best knowledge of the game, the best throw. This is not how God operates. When God puts together his church, God works with the foolish, the weak, and the common so that no one can glory in their own flesh. God took a group of nobodies, is what Paul is getting at here, and he turned the world upside down. That is, nobody's according to the world's standard. And this is not anything new 
in the character of God. He took fishermen to flip the Roman Empire. He took a baby floating down the Nile River to bring Pharaoh down. He called a man who was a moon worshiper and an idolater out of, the, out of Earl the Chaldeas to form his people Israel. And out of all of his handsome and strong brothers, the small, unimpressive shepherd was chosen. This is how God has worked all throughout history. And we see the reference in Jeremiah 9 that we read in our scripture reading. I think Paul most definitely had Jeremiah chapter 9 in his mind when he was writing this. Not just because he quotes it at the end of the passage, but notice how the, you just listen. Paul says in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Well, that sounds like 1 Corinthians 26. Not many of you were wise. And he says in Jeremiah, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Well, that sounds like not many of you were powerful. And Paul says, not many of you, or let not the rich man boast in his riches. And that most certainly was what came from being born of noble birth, of privileged place. It's ironic here because Paul is telling these Corinthian believers to look where there really nothing is. Look at your calling. You were the bottom of the barrel. And God still called them as foolish, weak, nobody. God's categories for power and for wisdom are not the world's. They're not often how we would think of power and wisdom. And this should be such an encouragement to you this morning. Because oftentimes we probably think to ourselves, man, I I just wish I was this or I wish I was that. I could serve the Lord so much better. Or if I had this or that, I, I could be so much more effective in this area. Or maybe even as a church, this is a tempting thought. Man, if we could get some sort of billionaire or businessman or senator or high-profile individual converted as a Christian, man, Maranatha's ministry would really just take off. But this is not how God works. God delights in taking the nobodies, the simple, calling them to himself. And this is why he does so. Look at, we've seen the circumstances of the believers calling but look at the purpose of God in these believers election verses 27 to 29 but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is lowly and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul opens up the door, if you will, for us to catch a glimpse of God's saving purposes in choosing to save those whom the world would look down on. Paul is saying, look, you guys really in Corinth, you're nothing of significance. But God chose you, the insignificant, for a reason. I think it's helpful for us to note here about these three verses is this idea of the word, the believer's election, God's saving purposes, okay? What we need to know is the Corinthians did not stumble onto a great thing by hearing the good news of Christ when Paul preached it, and they happened to buy in and said, wow, that's really convincing. No, God is sovereign, 
and God chose them on that day at that time to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to faith in him. When we speak of God's choice and salvation, we are speaking of his freedom and his sovereign decision to grant love and grace toward whomever he pleases. Because if we really understand who we are in our sin, all humanity is undeserving of God's gracious decision to bestow love and grace and mercy on them. He should not, yet he does. And Paul is pointing out here that oftentimes the individuals that he does bestow his grace and mercy to are the individuals that we would least expect. And what does he, what is his purpose behind this? He does it to shame the worldly value system. God did not choose what is foolish in the, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised to bring the somethings of this world to nothing. And I don't think that Paul is trying to in any way demean or embarrass these Corinthian Christians by really coming hard and saying, hey, look, you're nothing. I don't think that's what he's trying to do. Rather, I think he's seeking to exalt the grace of God. Now, we have two parallel statements in verse 27. He's doing the same thing to the wise as he is doing to the strong. He's shaming them. Now, in our culture, we're a little separated from understanding what shame culture is like. Maybe you are from a different country here, and shame culture is a little bit more easier to grasp for you. But I think on some level, shame is humiliating in all societies. Uh, I remember hearing of this shame culture in China. And if you did not become what your family wanted you to become, whether that was to have a certain job or have a certain position, you bring shame on the family and you are shunned from the family. Okay, this type of shame culture was very prevalent in Corinth. Shame would have been deeply humiliated because of the great consciousness of how much the Corinthians wanted to have such high status in their day. People then and now, they love to be honored. They love to be named with respect. One author comments on this idea of shame in Corinth. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Where the worst thing that could happen was for one's reputation to be publicly tarnished, a.k.a. to be shamed. Shame is what was experienced in their day by those who find that they are torn down publicly. They have nothing left to boast in. They've lost their face in society, if you will. And what shame did was it served to confirm a person's inadequate community standing. And Paul is tapping into this tender spot in their culture. God is choosing this individual to shame this individual. But I don't think Paul is just using this idea of shame to communicate social embarrassment or abasement in society. Because the Old Testament background in the way that Paul is using this word to shame points to one being condemned by God in judgment. The prophets in the Psalms, they regularly attest to God's determination to vindicate the righteous 
and to bring the unrighteous to shameful end. Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 2, Psalm 6, 31, 35, 40. For Paul to bring this up and say that these individuals that God has chosen, he has done so to shame these individuals. Paul has in mind that God has already begun to shift the worldly value system and turn it on its head. For Paul, this vindication of the righteous has become an item of the end time, something that will happen in the future. In choosing the Corinthians, God has already begun to finally vindicate his people and to put to shame those who truly think in and of themselves they are wise. They are of noble birth. They are of privilege. And it's even clearer that Paul had this final end of humbling in mind. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. This phrase, bring to nothing, if you're holding an NIV in front of you, it could be translated to nullify. It carries with it the idea to destroy. And Paul uses this word ten times all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the first spot. And when Paul uses this word to nullify or to bring to nothing, he is always talking about some future end-time eschatological event that will take place. And Paul is convinced that what's going on in God choosing the lowly of society over those who would be highly exalted in society, that God is already in Christ and the individuals whom he is saving, God is already setting the future in motion whereby this present age, along with all the earthly values is on its way out. It's being done away with by God himself. So that these worldly standards, these worldly values, these worldly priorities are being reversed by God. Through Christ crucified, which was a foolish message, and by God calling these lowly Corinthians to be participants in his glory of low status, the rug is being pulled out from under any who could claim fellowship with God and boast in their own social status of wisdom, influence, or wealth. Not only does God have a purpose here to take all of those who would find glory in themselves and destroy them one day, humble them, but look at verse 29. Here is the ultimate purpose for why God saves the lowly of society. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Thus far, the purpose of God in choosing the lowly or the nobodies in society was to bring the somebodies, those who thought themselves to be esteemed, to bring them to shame. Well, there's an even greater purpose, and it's God's preservation of his own glory. The ultimate end goal for God in choosing those whom he does is so that there would be no human standard of boasting in his presence. One commentator puts it this way, God, it turns out, deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever 
from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in divine presence with something in their hands. Verse 3 of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Paul is, in a sense, lifting our eyes up to that day when we stand before God and truly think to ourselves, do I really have a leg to stand on? The answer is no. This idea of boasting in verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. This word, to boast, it's, it's sort of tricky to translate. And at times, it can mean primarily two different things. One way to understand it is actually in a negative way, to take pride in something or to glory in something that probably you don't have the right to. Okay, that's like me with my science project. My mom deserved the glory, but I didn't, right? I was boasting in something that I had no right to do. But another way, at times, Paul uses this word boast with the idea of trusting in something or to put one's full confidence in something. So you and I, we would boast in something that we have risked everything in order to secure ourselves. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Teen camp is coming up. And oftentimes there will be a group of us individuals who will go out to a 100-foot cliff and we will repel off the side of it. It's the, most, it's the best part of camp. Not caving, repelling. Well, for those of us who have never done it before, I always think to myself, all right, who are we going to have to like, literally push off the side of the mountain this time because they're so terrified of going off? Okay? When we go rappelling, we're not just willy-nilly jumping off the side of the cliff. We have gear. Okay? We have guides there, obviously, who know what they're doing. We have ropes tied to sturdy trees on the top of the mountain. We have a harness on us, and we are rappelling off the side of the mountain. And I have never heard of an accident on our trips. We make it to the bottom safely. Okay, well, in that moment, doesn't matter how terrified the person was on the way down, when they get to the bottom of the cliff, the only thing that they can boast in, the only reason they made it to the bottom safely, was because of that repelling harness equipment. So in that sense, they trusted, they put their entire confidence in that harness. They risked everything in order to secure themselves with this harness. And here's the call of the text. There is nothing other than Christ that we can stand before God and have our full confidence in. There's nothing in this world the call of this text is there is no ability to boast in wisdom, intellect, privilege. Because in God's purposes, he has chosen the lowly things so that there would be no boasting in his presence. If you're here this morning and your trust, your glory, your boast is not in Christ and what he did, then you are in eternal trouble. Because in these verses, Paul has made it quite clear 
that all other boasting has been destroyed and ultimately will be destroyed one day. What would it look like if you and I lived our lives with this reality at the forefront of our minds every day? That one day when we stand before God, we will have nothing in and of our humanly efforts or our status to boast in before God. I hope that we're all singing the third verse of Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But think of how much of a different perspective of life that this reality brings, that when we stand before God, there will be nothing to boast in save him. If we truly have nothing to boast in in and of ourselves one day, when we stand before the Lord, hopefully as as his child, I think we would view our we would view our ambitions, we would view our goals, we would view our pursuits, our money, our relationships with people with a much more eternal, heavenly perspective. What would it look like for you and I to live in verse twenty nine every day? That before God one day, there will be nothing to boast in and of ourselves, but of God's gracious decision to give us the opportunity to be called His. Well, before we understand that boasting is just a terrible thing and no one should do it, we come to our last point, and Paul closes out this section with what we might call a Christian vision of boasting. Because not all boasting is bad if it is in the right individual and in the right individual's work. Lastly, notice in verses 30 and 31 the status of these believers at their conversion the status at the believer's conversion. Paul says in verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now up to this point, Paul has over and over and over again been telling these Corinthians, you are nothing. You're not wise. You're not strong. You're not of noble birth. But notice what he does. He changes his posture in verse 30. He tells them who they are. He's seeking to encourage them and what they are now in Christ. Here's what you should be glorying in, who you are in Christ. But before he does, he slips in, once again, the sovereign grace of God to make sure that their encouragement comes from biblical thinking. Look at verse 30. And because of him. Who is him? Well, it's God in verse 29. In his presence and because of him. You are in Christ. God is the only cause of the Christian's status in Christ. While you and I have no standing before God that is based on our knowledge, on our wisdom, our influence of power, our family's social class, we do have standing before God, but it is on the basis of pure grace. Undeserved unearned, Romans 3 tells us, unwanted. The only standing that we have before God is on the basis of pure grace. Our standing, our status in Christ rests in the fact that God has given it to us. We owe our standing in Christ to God. Not our wisdom, not our power, 
not our wealth. So God takes us and places us in Christ. This idea to be in Christ is simply an expression that if you're a believer here this morning, you live in this realm. Ephesians 1 tells us that all of the heavenly blessings that God has promised to his children, they are received because you and I are in Christ. And in Christ, God has put forth not worldly wisdom, but true wisdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer that brings sinful man back into a right standing before God. In contrast to all the different philosophies of today, and even in the city of Corinth, true wisdom is from God's mind, not the mind of the intellect of the day. God is the only one who put forth Christ as man's only hope for salvation. And if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, look at who you are. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Here's who you are. Here's your new status. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, we could have a whole sermon on each of these words, but for the sake of time, we'll summarize them, hopefully. Righteousness. This describes the act whereby God has declared the guilty sinner to be righteous. The only way that you and I as sinful human beings can stand before an, a holy God and not be consumed by his judgment is because of our faith in another who actually can stand and is God. The first man, Adam, as our human representative, he broke God's law. And just like when one player on a basketball team commits a foul and the whole team gets penalized, that's what happened Adam sinned, he fouled, and we all receive punishment due. And it's not because we and of ourselves have not sought after sin ourselves. We indeed have. So in the first Adam, all receive and deserve God's judgment. But in the second, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life as a new representative of humanity as a whole, in him, there is salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ sin, who knew no sin, for us. So that while Christ walked a perfect life in our place and died on the cross of Calvary that you and I deserve to die because of our sins, we now, by our faith in Jesus Christ, can be declared righteous by God. We can have the perfect life of Christ applied to our account. This is the only way. This is the wisdom of God. In the death of Christ, he took your guilt for your sins on himself, unjustly, on a cruel cross. He paid the penalty for the sins of all of those who will place their trust in him. And because of this, they no longer have debt in their account before God. The debt is gone and they have had an immaculate transfer of the righteousness of Christ, accredited to their account. So now when God looks at us in Christ, he doesn't see us as the guilty sinners who deserve condemnation, but rather as heirs with Christ. This is who you are, and this is what you can boast in. But it's nothing of you, it's Christ. Sanctification. Now oftentimes we most 
think of sanctification as that time of period, period of time, excuse me, between justification, righteousness, where we have been declared by Christ, righteous by, by God, through Christ, and until Christ comes back or we pass from this earth. It's this sanctification, we often understand it as this continual progression of our being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28. I don't think that's necessarily what Paul has in mind here. This term, sanctification, has to do with, let me use the word, definitive sanctification. That is this, that when you and I are placed in Christ, we receive a nature that we had not formerly had. You and I are born into this world. Paul calls it the old flesh. He calls it the old man. In this realm of the old man, you and I are servants to sin. We are slaves to our sin. There is no way out. We love sin. We obey it. When we are placed in Christ, God does a work of transfer. He gives us a new nature. So now we are individuals who not only have this continual old nature, because we still sin even as believers. Amen? Okay. Uh, we are transferred into this new nature, this new realm. Paul calls it the new man. And in that new realm, we now have a new heart that desires to obey God and does by the Lord's grace. So in this status of being sanctified, we have been transferred from this realm of the old man. We could say in Adam, and we have been placed into Christ so that you and I should now begin to see fruits of this work that God has done by transferring us from this realm where we only serve sin to now this place where we can serve Christ. What a freeing thought. John calls it the incorruptible seed. Peter calls it the holy seed. And this initial work is something that you and I need in order to live a life that is pleasing to God here on this earth, and we have it. You are righteous if you are in Christ. You are sanctified if you are in Christ. You have everything you need. Lastly, Paul says, we have redemption. Now, this is a term drawn from a slave trade to reflect the believer's newfound freedom from sin, from corruption, from death. When I hear the word redemption, I can't help but think of God's pinnacle act of redemption in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, 1 through 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. What God did for Israel physically in freeing them from Egyptian captivity so long ago has now in the same way, in a very similar way, been demonstrated spiritually in what God has done for his people in Christ, for you and me. You and me as believers, we have been set free from slavery to sin. We have been saved from his coming judgment. Look at what God has done for the believer in Christ. The one who is in Christ is a privileged individual. It does not matter where you fall in the world's eyes. This is the status of the believer in God's eyes. In an age that 
that we live in that speaks so much of achieving a good self-esteem, this passage is helpful. For it points to a sinful view of self, a sinful self-esteem, and it points to a godly understanding of ourselves. Too frequently, our, our modern worldly psychology gets drawn into the church. A psychology that seeks to build up individuals or empower them is the way it's expressed today. And by doing so, they emphasize how good or gifted that individual is or how valuable they are to this world or how valuable they are to God. And oftentimes this self-esteem that the world seeks to push at us is based on a favorable, favorable comparison to someone else. Well, you're not as bad as this person, so you're doing all right. And what Paul says in this passage, it shows that the gospel undercuts all such ideas to self-esteem. To begin with, the gospel leaves people, you and I, with nothing. We are nothing before God. Often in the world's eyes, we are nothing, but certainly in God's eyes, we are something if he were to extend his mercy to us. What this text does for you and me as believers is it offers a way forward that provides a realistic and a godly view of ourselves. Instead of fighting for some identity that we want or some self-esteem that we wish we had, instead of constantly feeling weighed down and crippled by a continual understanding of ourselves in a low esteemed way. What we can do as Christians is we can look to our calling and to our Father who chose us. Then they will see that we now have a new status in Christ. We are righteous. We are sanctified. We are redeemed. Let this be an encouragement to you this morning. The divine verdict on God's children is out. Those in Christ are righteous, sanctified, and redeemed. And the plan of God has been worked in the Christian. And he or she, as a Christian, has a status that is set apart as the people of God. Well, here's the final and ultimate purpose to this passage of verse 31. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, skip to verse 31, so that, as it is written, Jeremiah 9, 24, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The ultimate purpose of God's sovereign grace in our lives, that if there is any boasting, it would be in Christ and Christ alone. There is no greater plan of salvation because this is the plan that gives God the most glory and the glory that he deserves. When it comes to our salvation, we can only boast in the Lord. How about you this morning? Are you you thinking correctly about your status before God? We often come to a sermon and we want to be told how to live or something we're doing wrong and how to fix it. But I think this passage, in part, speaks to our thinking about our salvation. Because if we are not thinking correctly about 
our status before God and how we got there, then that leads to places in our life where we take pride, where we really don't have any leg to take pride in. Have you come to the reality that you stand in Christ only because the grace of God in choosing you, in calling you, in giving you a new identity, one that is only found in what Christ has done? What a humbling truth. But what, what a great empowering truth. We have purpose and meaning and a new identity because God says we do as his child, not because of who we are or what we do. And this is true of every single child of God, no matter the social status. I'm often, to tempt, I'm often tempted to think this way, and I think you'd be honest, maybe not in front of everybody, I understand that. But if you really think deeply, I've had this thought before. Wow, isn't God so lucky, lucky to have a great member of his family? Such a great servant on his team and me. Yeah, God really found a gem when he found me. That You might be thinking, wow, I can't believe you would ever think that. We think those things. And if we think those things, we have begun to completely misunderstand God's purpose in saving us. It's not to boast in ourselves. God doesn't, quite frankly, he doesn't need us at all. He had perfect glory in the Trinity with the Son and the Spirit before time began. He doesn't need any more glory. It is all of grace that you and I are his and have the opportunity to serve him. And if we truly understand God's purposes in saving us, our only response when we consider a text like this, that God called us on the basis of nothing that we are, but solely on his mercy, this is our only response. God, why would you choose such a nobody like me? If that doesn't grip you with humility this morning, I don't think you rightly understand who you are before God. Paul throws boasting down in this passage. What do you boast in this morning? Is it your intellect? Is it your money? Your family? Your possessions? Talents or giftings? When we boast in such things other than Christ... At best, we are participating in a boasting that is going to be destroyed one day. And at worst, we are taking glory away from someone who rightly deserves it. When it comes to our salvation in Christ, we can only boast in the Lord. For it is solely on the basis of God's grace that we are his. I trust this text was encouraging to you this morning. While we in our finite minds don't always have the ability to understand God's purposes in how and why he saves, we at least know that in saving us, he is preserving his glory that he rightly deserves. In us that are part of Christ, we are in Christ, we have nothing left to say than this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God, 
I hope that you glory in your status as one who has been made righteous, who has been sanctified, who has been redeemed, but only on the basis of God's sovereign grace and in the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need this text. All throughout the week, we battle against the opportunity to take pride in the things that we are or our accomplishments. Father, I pray that even as members of this church, we would recognize that by your grace, you have called all different people from all different walks of life. I pray that we would not look down on the individuals of our church family just because they're from a different background or they don't meet some requirement in our eyes. Help us to understand that at the foot of the cross, you level the playing field. There is no room for boasting in and of ourselves. Father, I ask that you would allow this text to remind us that we are privileged to be in your family. And I pray from a place of privilege, we would strive to make Christ's name known. You receive all glory. You will get it. Help us this week that we would boast in nothing else save the death of Christ and the salvation that is in him. In Christ's name I pray.